Oh, bless Somebody God. Let's say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Good. Thank you, big bro. Amen. 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 Only problem I have with the music today, y'all just need to find some more stanzas. Songs are just too short. <laughs> I appreciate it so much as well, the male chords. Two more minutes. I was getting ready to walk around here, <laughs> walk down there. Although I missed rehearsal last night, I was going to sing. Y'all stopped just in time. I want to thank my dear friend and your energetic, spirit-filled, spirit-led pastor for the invitation to come home and stand in his pulpit where he warms your souls from Sabbath to Sabbath. Thank you so much. I also want to thank my nephew, Craig. Whom I am extremely proud of for the work that he is doing all over the place. Praise team, male course, men's leader, everything. Might be ushering somewhere now. Uh, the Lord is using him and he just loves this church. And we thank the Lord for that. It is good to be home, always good to be home. No place like home. And the thing that I believe is especially good about this time, this is the first time in four years or more that we have come home for something other than the funeral of a family member. Other visits have not been the most exciting times, but this one is a real joy. To see all of my family, uh, Brother Curtis and his dear wife, who, who I was surprised to see you, sis. I know you've been in the hospital, and she's come all the way here to make sure Curtis behaves. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, because when you start talking Sabbath school, he just gets beside yeah, himself, Pastor. He loves, he loves Sabbath school. In fact, I hope he brought my book. Uh, okay, he, I wrote the foreword in his book, and so he owes me a free book. And I'm sure he has that, that book with him today. But it's just a joy to see all of us. And pardon me if I, if I can I take just a moment? Just a moment. Okay. You know, I, you know I was going to take it anyhow. But I just, I just, just a personal note for just a moment. Uh, Raymond Poole. Yeah, prayer is going all over the place. And... Um, we're email buddies, and it's a real joy to see you here today. Yeah. Uh, the Lord is still, still blessing here. And, and there's so many more of you, and I, and I, I, I dare not start calling names for, invariably um, I may leave someone out and just say all of my family, my nieces and nephews and cousins and the cousins of cousins and uh, 
all of those folks who are, are here today. It's just a joy to, to see all of you. I, I should mention, though, uh, you, you mentioned her. Sister Mildred, would you just stand? My wife, um, um, she kind of... She, she kind of hangs with me too, Pastor. She, she knows I get beside myself too, so she, she, she kind of hangs with, with, with me as well. And uh, so it's, it's a joy to have her. In fact, uh, uh, she, she really was a help me coming here. Uh, I was kind of weary when we left early yesterday morning, and that sister got behind the wheel and almost brought us all the way in here. I mean, she, she did so well coming. I'm going to let her do the same thing going back. <laughs> well, well, it's, it's men's day and this is the Lord's time and, and we should get right into um, the Lord's word. And, and today it's a challenge as we, we, we share. Oh, well, I, must, I must mention first, what a joy to see these baptismal candidates. Yeah. Because of that... Um, It's a real testimony to your ministry, your leadership, your vision, and the support of the members, because that's what the church is all about. Uh, it's the winning of souls. And so you, you, you are about to, to meet someone. Let me tell you, your life will never, ever be the same again. Yes. But it's going to be good. Yes. And uh, I don't know you by name. But I am proud of the decision that you have made to follow the Lord all the way. I said all the way. No matter what, all the way. And thank God for you today. Would you turn with me to the book of John chapter 21? My message to us as men, and I got to include the sisters because you're here today too. And we cannot allow you to go home feeling empty, your needs unspoken to. My message today is broken to his likeness. Broken to his likeness. Let me read just a few scriptures out of the 21st chapter of the book of John. And I'm reading from the New International Version. And the Bible says this in John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter 
heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him that he had taken off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do not invite you to this place because this is your place. This is your house. You have extended an invitation for us to come. And with good common sense, we have responded. And we are here. Here to be led by you. Here to be spoken to you, to, spoken to by you. And so, Lord, as I humbly stand before your people as your servant today, let the words of my mouth, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, you are my strength and you are my redeemer. And so it is in your name that I pray and thank you. Amen. 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 Broken to his likeness. While searching the scriptures, you cannot help but become fascinated with the variety of personalities that Jesus chose to be his disciples and his apostles. Although nearly half of them were fishermen, others came from different cultural backgrounds. Each man was unique and each man had a special place in carrying out God's kingdom work. Even Judas could have been used by God had he not been captivated by greed and motivated to betray Christ and sell his soul for 30 pieces of silver. Yet the fact remains that Jesus chose men who were for the most part egocentric and self-serving, but he took them anyway. And he transformed them into disciples who became sold out servants for the Lord. Some even facing death because of the message they believed in and the message they preached so firmly. One thing we do know about them. They changed the course of history. And laid the foundation for this church. What is most encouraging though. Is that most of these men would have been disqualified for service. If they had been chosen based on what they were when Christ called them. The important lesson for us is what they became because of Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting, my brothers and sisters, that we should place people in positions in the church who are self-centered and immature. 
But I do believe that we need to think long range when we begin to prepare men to become good husbands and good fathers and good church leaders and good workers. Jesus demonstrated that he can use us in spite of us and in spite of our weaknesses and that he has a power to enable us to become men of God. But while the stories of these men are encouraging, they are also a cause for reflection. I was challenged myself because it made me look at my own life and my own commitment to Jesus, my own attitudes and and my own actions as a Christian man. And the question that I face then and still do is what extent am I practicing what I'm preaching? The apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1 said it this way. Follow my example as I follow the Lord. You ought not just follow anybody. Make sure whoever you follow that you follow those who love the Lord. Spiritual manhood, my brothers and sisters, calls for courage to keep on moving in the midst of overwhelming odds. To be a man in this world, you must have courage to overcome your fears, faith to answer your doubts, and love to get beyond your loss. Most of us believe, though, That to be a real man, all you need to do is get out of bed every morning with a perfect story. No fears, no tragedies, no insecurities, and no self-doubts. Now that's true to a certain extent. Some parts of life are orderly. And some parts of life are manageable. Cars will not run without gas. Try it and you'll see. You'll have fewer problems If you brush and floss your teeth. If not, ask those of us who bought our teeth. Families get along better where there are involved husbands and fathers. Things that are doable must be done. Things that are manageable must be managed. But sometimes the most important parts of life, the ones that make up what Christianity is all about, are often more mysterious than manageable and more chaotic than orderly. And they come in all kinds of disguises. A decision that has to be made. A reduction in pay. The loss of a job. The loss of a mate. A rebellious teenager. A bad medical prognosis. And the list goes on and on. And if we in fact are honest with ourselves, these things nag at us daily. Every time we speak to our wives, every time we work at our jobs, every time we sit down and try to pay our bills or try to make some sense out of our lives. And so the formula isn't always a simple one. All but my brothers and my sisters, I've come here to tell you today that God has designed designed some things not to frustrate or discourage us, but to call forth something out of us that he has already put inside of us. But in order for him to do that, we must first face the reality of who we are and where we are. Too often. When we are confronted with the realities of life, we go to great lengths to alter the facts 
or at least adjust them in our minds so that we can continue to live in our own personal and private comfort zones. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam had sinned, Jesus came walking in the garden. And he called out, Adam, where are you? When I was a young fellow pastor, I read that text and it was confusing to me. Because right here in this church, I had heard some of the best preachers this church had ever had talk about how the Lord knows everything. How he sees everything. And I couldn't understand that. Adam, where are you? I mean, after all, the Lord knew where he was. He was right behind the third bush on the side of the sixth rock. He knew where he was. God knew where Adam was hiding. But Adam was doing what men and women always do when they sin. He was adjusting reality because that's our nature and that's our struggle. The problem wasn't that God couldn't find Adam. Adam just didn't realize he was hiding. So God had to help him see the truth of the matter and the problem. And that's where God uh, is taking each one of us today. He wants to make us over into the likeness of his son. And so everything that happens to us in life, the small insignificant things or the large all-consuming things, each one is being used by God to make us more like his son Jesus. And the process of being made over is from the inside out. Imagine with me, if you will, a man who has been conformed to Jesus' image. He now has a personal and powerful relationship with Jesus Christ. That just by knowing him, the people he comes in contact with every day, his wife, his children, the people on his job, all of them because of this man and his relationship with Jesus discover their own individual potential. That is what the struggle is all about. It's to live out the likeness of Christ in this world. Now, now I know we talk a lot about heaven. I, I, I plan to go there. What about you? No, 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 no. I'm going there. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but I discovered something, that not only are people interested in, in life after death, some folks are interested in life after birth. They, 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 they want to know, because the Bible says, occupy until I come. So, so we have to live down here before we get up there and back here after this old earth has been fixed up for us. What do you say? So, so, so that's what the struggle is all about. It's, it's to live out the likeness of Christ in this world. And that is where you and I are headed if we just let the Lord have his way. Well, well how does he do it? What is the process? I, I discovered three quick things. Uh, number one, there is the making. The making. That's God's call or God's assignment for you. 
whatever he places in your life to do. That is his gift, his purpose for you. That's the making. Then there is the shaping. Here is where the word of God becomes the principal tool that he uses to direct and define your life so that you are equipped for accomplishing the assignment that he's already given you. But the word of God is the thing that gives definition and motivation to all of your decisions. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a thing that, that, that when, when God speaks to you out of his word, you know when God is speaking to you. But when God speaks to you, it becomes your responsibility not just to hear, but to listen. And not only listen, but respond accordingly. That's, that's the shaping. And then there is the breaking. Oh boy, that's an often misunderstood process. In fact, it even sounds negative. How in the world can you say that you love me so much that you're going to break me? I mean, that doesn't sound right. That's not the kind of Jesus that we like to talk about. You love me, and yet you're going to break me? Well, you see, it's different than what first comes to our minds. The breaking here is about correcting. It's about adjusting. It's not intended to hurt us. Its purpose is to heal and to redeem us. You, you cannot become like Christ unless you are willing to be broken. Every one of us has something inside of us that cannot be healed. It has to be broken. Philosophers call it the sin of hubris. Greeks understood hubris to be an ambitious kind of pride in one's own goodness that scorns any higher moral order. Now, now what I said in all of that definition was, we like to believe we can go it alone. That, that's what that really means. I, I can do this thing by, you know, myself. Um, hubris is not really an ambitious desire to commit evil. It's actually a desire to do good. Hubris is really sincere, and hubris is really well-intentioned. Hubris has all of the outward marks of righteousness and goodness but it has a heart of utter arrogance. And that's the terrible thing about it. Hubris is the deadliest kind of pride because it first appears to be goodness. Just, just, just give me an office in the church so the folks will see me and believe that I'm kind of holy. You, you understand? Talk about it. Just let me, just, just give me a solo. Let me... Let me sing loud so they won't think about the other stuff. And they'll say, he, he, he's, yeah, it looks like he's finally becoming a man of God. Just, just give me something to do. Let, let, let me teach. Let me do, do something to give people the impression that I'm all right when I really know that I'm not. Hubris is, is, is that kind of thing. It appears to be goodness. It tries so hard to be good. It tries so hard to do good in its own strength, but it's never able 
to pull it off. I discovered a long time ago that it takes the life of Jesus to live the life of Jesus. And we are not honest with ourselves and honest with others when we strive for righteousness in our own strength because we will never pull it off. But oh, how we love to try. Now let's cut through the chase here because I believe, I believe that, that the one fellow in all that scripture who best illustrates the sin of hubris is old Simon Peter. Simon, Simon Peter is the guy. He appears to make all of the right commitments and all of the right confessions that make him and all of us proud to be members of the church. Peter is somewhat, you know, absolutely sincere and completely genuine. His motives always appear to be pure. This guy's got insight. And you can't help believe that Peter knows some things that the other disciples just don't know. They don't get it. In fact, when Jesus, four times, in Matthew 26, in Mark 14, in Luke 22, and John 13, predicts that the apostle would forsake him, it was Peter who sincerely and proudly declared, Lord, if they all fall away from you, On account of you, I never will. In fact, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Oh, no. And when he says that, let's be honest with ourselves. You really can't help but believe the fellow. But Jesus knows that it won't be long before Peter is broken. And so he allows it to happen. And so using his original name, Simon Peter, listen what he says to him over in, uh, where I want to be, Luke chapter 22. Let let, let me just read what what he says to old brother Peter uh, over there. Where do I want to go here? Uh, Yeah, here it is, Uh, Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. He he says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sit you as wheat. And don't miss this next part. But I have prayed for you. I'll come back to that one. Uh, but Brother Craig in teaching the lesson morning, he was talking about there's so much bad stuff in this world. We need some hope today. What do you say? So I come to, to whip us a little bit, but then to give us a little hope before we leave. But, but I have prayed for you, he says. Have mercy. I got to read that one again. But, but I have prayed for you, uh, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, 
before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you ever knew me. <laughs> now, before we start pointing fingers and shaking our head and saying, boy, that's a terrible fellow. Or before we start doing that, we, we better remember some stuff today. All of us have stumbled and fallen in our Christian walk. And some of the failures have made us painfully aware of how vulnerable and weak we really are. Peter said it would never happen. And it did. You said, I said, it would never happen. I would never do that. I would never go there. I would never dishonor the Lord like that. But guess what? We did. Can the lights say amen? We did. But if Peter was listening, and if you and I are listening today, Jesus, in spite of all of our mess, still offers us hope. Whatever the failure, it is never big enough to disqualify you from becoming the man or the woman that God wants you to become. No matter what better encouragement for Peter and for you and for me to know that Jesus Christ himself is praying that we not fail. I'll say that again. What better encouragement for you and for me to know that Jesus Christ himself prays that we not fail. Now the last few days, the last few days, everyone's attention has been turned towards new birth, Missionary Baptist Church in Atlanta and Bishop Eddie Long. People say he's arrogant. Maybe he is. Don't know. He's this and that. Some folks have even said, I've been praying that the Lord would bring him down. All that stuff over there going on about time. They finally got it. It is a terrible thing. When we as people of God. Come on sir. Begin praying. I don't care what church you go to. I don't care if you Methodist. Episcopalian. Seven day advances. I don't care what you are. When you start praying that somebody fails. That there, there is a scripture in. In the RHLV, that's the Richard H. Long version. That, that simply, let me just quote it. It says, What goes around comes around. Can, can I give you a quick example? How, how long I've been preaching? About two minutes? About two. Okay, about two. I, I remember Pastor Charles Brooks, C.D. Brooks, came home. I had the pleasure of pastoring 
his family in his home church in Greensboro for about eight and a half years. And in fact, we lived right out in the rural area in Brown Summit, North Carolina, where he was raised up. And he tells a story of, of his first day of learning how to farm. His father was a farmer. And as far as his father, he said that early one morning, they loaded up, they loaded up the truck in, in, in the trailer and they headed out to the field where, where the father had left the tractor sitting for the night. And he was going to give Elder Brooks his first lesson in how to plow a field. And, and he said they, they got up on the tractor. He was sitting on, on that fender over the wheel and his daddy was, 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 and his daddy was teaching him. And he said, now, now son, in order to plow correctly, fix your eye on some object at the other end of the field, a tree or a bush or whatever, and, and, and you, you plow, you make those furrows straight. You keep your eye on that thing. But he said as they were plowing the field, they, they, they came up on a huge mass of rock that was right there in the middle of, and so, you know, C.D. said he thought that what a farmer does, you just go around it, and his father says, no, we got to move this rock. Man, how are you going to move this rock? So he said, come on, son. And they, they took the tractor and they went back over where the, the, the truck and the trailer was. And he said, today you get your first lesson in dynamite. And so he said he took the cover off the back of the truck and he pulled out a box. And there were these, these dynamite sticks. And, and, and so he taught them then how to pack the powder in the sticks and, 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 and the charge, how to put it in the dynamite sticks and then how to put... The, 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 what do you call it? the fuse down in the thing. And then he said they loaded them up in a sack and they walked back out to where that big mass of rock was. And, and his father showed him how to strategically place those dynamite sticks all around the base of, of that rock. And then he said they took a long fuse and they went backwards all the way back, back over into a tree area. And, and then when they knew everything was set, they, they, they lit the fuse and, and they watched for a while. And as it was getting closer to that massive rock, his father told him, okay, son, let's get behind these trees and cover your head. And a few minutes later, he said, there was this loud explosion. And they got up and his father said, okay, let's go. And now we got to take the wagon. We got to unhook it from the truck and hook it to the tractor. And we got to go out there and we got to move all of this rock. And so they did that and they got back out there. Charlie said that when he looked at what had happened, there were two lessons that he had learned. One lesson is for a different sermon, but I'll just, I'll just say it anyway here. He said when he looked at how that dynamite had moved what appeared to be insurmountable rock, the first thing that came to his mind was that dynamite in the hands of a fool is destructive. Some folks say power in the hands of a fool is destructive. The, the second thing, lesson he said he learned, and that's where I'm coming when I'm talking about praying that people fail. He said the second lesson he learned was this, that dynamite in the process of destroying that rock destroyed itself. You, you, you didn't hear what I said. Dynamite in the process of destroying what appears to be yeah. insurmountable yeah. masses of rock destroys yeah. itself. Be careful how you pray for the downfall yeah. of other people. Wow. That's good stuff here. That's good stuff. 
Oh yes, God is a God of love and God wants us to bring our praise to him. But I know a God of wrath too. And I know a God of judgment too. And there's one thing none of us ever want to do. We don't want to fall into the judgment hands of God. So what a good thing to know that in spite of my messed up condition. Yes. Because see, there may be some stuff that only I know that I did. You don't know. But the Lord knows. But the Lord still says, I'm going to pray that you never fail. Isn't that? And so in spite of all that's going on with Brother Peter, there is still that hope there. Unfortunately, though, for some of us, it seems to take a series of failures to get our attention. For Peter, after denying Christ three times, it would happen on the Galilean seashore on the, at the very same spot almost where Jesus three years earlier had taught him his first lesson in humility. The same spot where he had called him to be a fisher of men. Three years later, they're back at the very same spot again. And now, instead of calling him to leave his nets to become a fisher of men, Jesus now looks at old Peter. Now, now remember something. I need to give just a quick little bit of history. After the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, Peter was messed up. He was messed up. He was confused. Uh, he was bewildered. He was discouraged. Uh, he, he was just messed up. And in fact, he was embarrassed because of, of his repeated failures. And so he concluded that, that he was not worthy, you know. And so he said, I'm going to go back and return to fishing. And so Peter decided that he would do that. Now, my brothers, that is what it appears we always like to do. When we become overwhelmed with our failures and decide that it's not worth trying anymore, we seek solace by returning to our friends and our old comfort zones. Peter's old comfort zone was the open sea, his boat, the art of fishing with his buddies. But I discovered something a long time ago that when you try to fish without Jesus, you fish without perspective. When you try to fish without Jesus, you fish without identity. When you try to fish without Jesus, you fish without a future. Whatever you try to do, you will never be satisfied. You will never be successful. You will never be complete without Jesus. So in John chapter 21, we discovered that the very thing that Peter felt confident in doing, he couldn't do that anymore. Fishing all night long. Got all the best stuff. Got the prettiest tackle box. Got new heavy line. Got the sharpest hooks. The most expensive bait. All night long. Can't catch a thing. The song says, just when we need him most. But early 
in the morning. In the early midst of the morning, Jesus was walking on the shore. Now remember, almost the same stuff that's going on now went on three years before. And so Jesus calls out, throw your net. Now, now the, the NIV says, on the right side of the boat. Boy, that's a whole sermon right there. I mean, you, you can throw your stuff a whole lot of places, but if you don't throw it on the yeah. right side, yeah. oh, Lord have mercy, I better go on. I better. And, now, I can hear old Peter. I can just hear him right now because all of this stuff starts hitting him. The same thing happened three years ago. Somebody is always trying to tell me what to do. Throw your net on the right side. And so he fusses, and I would imagine some of his old habits came back. He probably cussed a little bit, you know. But then, reluctantly, (laughs) he and the other disciples decide to follow Jesus' instructions. And when they do, the very same thing that happened three years before happens again. The net is full to the brim. <laughs> Have mercy. All of a sudden, Peter's eyes are open. He can hardly believe what he sees. The man who is walking on the shore is Jesus. Now what I like about Jesus, he's come back not to criticize Peter. He come back not to put him down. He's come back not to talk about all his failures and all of his mess. But but now he's come back to finish the process of breaking Peter and making Peter and molding Peter into the man that he wanted him to be. And so lovingly, he stands there. Now notice, Peter, you know, we have this thing about us, in spite of what the Lord does for us, we still like to give ourselves a whole lot of credit. One writer said that Peter jumped in the water. He was doing back flips, side flips. He was doing underneath flips. He was just showing off. He just almost single-handedly pulled the net full of fish to the shore. Just because he was trying to please his master again. After all, he had failed him all these times. But he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't fully understand what the Lord is trying to do. So there he is, standing on the shore, dripping wet and exhausted. (laughs) And he notices that the Lord has already started a fire and already has fish (laughs) cooking over the fire. I know Craig likes to hear this story. (laughs) And then Jesus, now now, now notice something about how the Lord is. See, see, the Lord doesn't, you know, he he, he likes to do things that make us feel kind of important. He could have just said, come and eat my fish. But he said, you brothers bring yours too. Now, 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 he didn't need to do that. After all, this is the same Jesus who took a little boy's sack lunch. 
and fed thousands of people. Yeah, he yeah, didn't yeah. need their fish, he need but, but he wanted them to feel that they were kind of important. So he said, bring your fish and add it to, to, to you know. So I can imagine now, the Bible does not say, but I can imagine that after they've eaten, now they're sitting there picking bones out of their teeth and sitting there. I can hear all of those stories now. They've already forgotten. Jesus sitting there by himself, quiet, and, and, and Peter and disciples sitting there talking about all yeah. their stuff and how they've done all of this and how good they are at this and how, how you know, all, you know how we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how we do. Uh-huh. You know, Lord brings us back to the church and we run and get the mic and get up and give a testimony and, and give everybody credit but the Lord. <laughs> oh, that mercy. As though we had sense enough. As though we were smart enough when we were out there doing all of that crazy yes. stuff. Not understanding that somebody at Glenville was praying for me. And somebody was praying for you. And that the Lord was praying for you. And that you didn't just come back because you got some degree somewhere. You came back because you needed to come back. And the Lord brought you back. And he spared your life to get you back. When he brought you back, some of your friends lost their lives and never made it back. Yeah. But here they are sitting there bragging and patting each other on the back. Yeah, man, ain't that, ain't that salmon good? Yeah, man, that's salmon, that's stuff. That's stuff. And Jesus sitting there. And so he decides, and I'm, I'm coming home now. I'm he, he sits there. And so he once again decides to use the moment to teach Peter his greatest lesson in becoming a real man and a real servant leader. Once again, he calls him by his original name. Three times, he asked Peter if he really loved him. Simon, son of John, my version says, do you truly love me more than these? Now, now, it doesn't really say, but I assume that when he said more than these, maybe he's talking about the fish. Maybe he's talking about the boats. Maybe he's talking about, you know, the, the, all that stuff. Or, or maybe even the other disciples. Do you love me more? But, but whatever. Do you love me more than these? And, and just kind of casually, oh, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. And he just goes on. He's still talking. Mm-hmm. So Jesus got to get his attention. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? I mean, why are you dissing me? Is that what young folks say? Yeah, I love you. I said I love you. I mean, why are you embarrass me in front of everybody? I said I love you. Peter is hurt now. In fact, he's irritated at Jesus' persistence. But Jesus had to make sure that Peter means this time what he's saying and that he is ready to back up his words with actions. So this time he locks his eyes with Peter's eyes. Simon? Son of John, do you love me? And there it is. It was the final, yet the same question that brought Peter to a point of brokenness and tears. 
He was probably recalling that Jesus had predicted all of his failures. And so he answered him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Oh, but Lord, you also know that I have failed you miserably. Peter's sincere confession moved him closer to becoming the man and the leader that God wanted him to be. Look at it. Bit by bit. Piece by piece. Word by word. Jesus lovingly is making this guy and shaping this guy and taking this guy to be all that he wants him to be. A proud, foolish, yet sincere guy moving a step closer to being like Jesus. It took time. Took time, took time, took time. Three years. I baptized a man in Atlanta. His son, when he sees me every Sabbath, leaving the Oakwood University Church almost every time he sees me, he comes up reminding me about his father, raised in this church, graduated from Pine Forge, went to Oakwood, and then lost his way. But at almost the age of 70, he made the mistake of walking back into the church. (laughs) Come on, Doc. Yes. And the truth again messed him up. Yes, it did. No, 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 no. Fixed him up. Yes. I was just the assistant pastor, but given the responsibility of getting in that pool and baptizing. That man, after all those years, the Lord had not given up on him. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Three years. The Lord had been putting up with Peter. And finally, he acknowledges his mess. It took time, but it happened. And Jesus changed him from the inside out. Now as I close, as I close. What I discovered in the story is a couple things. I had always believed that love and failure could not coexist. But I discovered from this story that love and failure can coexist. I also discovered that what breaks our hearts is being forced to acknowledge that even though we have failed Christ miserably, we sincerely and genuinely love him deeply and there's nothing we can do about it. This is what breaks the sin of hubris. This is what causes men and women to weep bitter tears and discover just how helpless they really are. And no matter how sincere, no matter how honest, 
no matter how good our intentions are, we don't have the strength or the power to pull it off without Jesus. Your marriage will never work until some husband wakes up and faces how selfish he's been or until some wife comes to her senses and faces her hurtful words and her reckless behavior. A young person will never resist peer pressure until he or she faces a deep-seated need for acceptance that drives their choices. One of the first things a counselor does to get people to be honest about what really is wrong with themselves is to face up reality but a person who doesn't believe that anything's wrong is nothing but a Pharisee and as a result he or she runs hides or simply avoids the Savior but I'm here to tell you today that what Jesus did for Peter and for men throughout the ages He wants to do for us today. He wants to save you where you are. Not where you wish you were and not where you think you ought to be. He wants to save you where you are. He he may not show up asking where are you as he did with Adam. But he may just start getting busy in your stuff. Arranging things in your life so until you get to the place where you don't have any more bushes to hide behind. One thing for certain, God will confront you where you are. And you will have to deal with the reality of who you are and where you are. And so my appeal to us today, first as men. If you know. That you are playing around on the edges of reality. Adjusting it. Hiding from it. Attempting to rationalize away the true condition that you're in. I implore you today. I beg you today. To let God do for you what he did for Peter. Let him make you. Let him shape you. Let him break you. And let him transform you. Into being the real man that he wants you to be. But there's some questions you got to ask yourself and you need to answer as well. What steps am I taking to forget what is behind and to press on toward what is ahead? What changes do I need to make in my life? What am I willing to give up in order to reach the goal? And in light of my personal history, where am I on my spiritual journey? Am I still really pressing on? After all, my brothers, you don't need a savior unless you suffer from sin. You don't need redemption unless you're in bondage. You don't need a liberator if you're not oppressed. If you refuse to embrace the reality of your need, you will never experience the healing that you need. If you deny that you're in darkness, then you will never accept the light. I'm here to tell you today, God is not going to adjust to your reality. He wants you to adjust to his. And in the process, oh, I promise you, you'll receive deliverance as never before. A whole new way of living will open up to you. And you will discover 
that is the most wonderfully real thing you've ever experienced. But I ask you today, do you have the courage to lay down the old and start anew? Are you willing to make a vow? Are you willing to keep some promises? Are you willing to make a lasting commitment? Peter left his boats. He left his nets. He left the art of fishing. That he might become a sold out man for God. Jesus asks you today. What hinders you? Do you love me? I ask you today. Are you still in love with him as you were when you first met him? If you're not sure, if it's been a while, I want you to know that he's still where he's always been. He's right there. Go into your closet if you must. Go into your own personal upper room and wait on him. And when he appears to you, don't run. Don't hide. Don't adjust stuff. Look at his hands. Look at his feet. Look at his side. Look in his eyes. And I promise you, you will never be the same again. For until the day when you see Jesus face to face, he'll be making you He'll be shaping you. He'll be breaking you. Yes. And he'll be conforming you to his very own likeness. Is that your desire today? Listen to this song. And then I'm coming back. Listen.